You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It's five o'clock somewhere. And you are listening to The Worship Review. In this podcast, we evaluate Christian music. And right now, we're doing Christmas music or Advent music or whatever. And yes, you liturgy snobs know that there's a difference. But for the purpose of a general audience, we are just talking about songs that are sung in this season. And I am Colin. I'm a history professor that studies the ancient Roman world at a large research university in the Midwest of the United States. And I'm joined, as always, by my favorite co-host, Tyler. I'm Tyler. I'm a linguist, and I primarily focus on German and sister languages of German. And we are here to critically and hopefully accurately— And charitably. And charitably—I mean mean critically in a nice way, like critical thinking, like— Um, critically and charitably and hopefully accurately appraise the worship and Christmas and Christian music that our churches are singing. And today we are looking at one of the older Christmas songs in the English language, a song which I don't even know who the author is, and I'm not sure anybody does. The song, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. Now, this is a song that has been sung so long that it predates sort of mass dissemination of songs. The first written version of this song doesn't show up until the mid-18th century or thereabouts, and it was older than that at that time. Now, what that means, I'm not just giving you a history lesson because I'm a historian. I'm giving you that history lesson, very brief one, to say there are a jillion ways that people sing this song. There are a bunch of verses— There are a bunch of different lines. And even like Tyler and I, when we do our research, we do the research separately and then we come together and talk for the first time about the song. So one of the things that Tyler and I are probably going to find out on this podcast is that we've we've looked at different versions. And so you in your church or in your tradition may be wondering like why we didn't talk about such and such verse or why we didn't talk about such and such line. And it's just... It's just because there's a lot of variation in the way that this song, like the older something gets, the more variation there is. Especially if there's no clear initial author and no official first version or published version of this, we just have the different revisions. Yeah. Which, by the way, and this is just an aside, an apologetics aside, it's one thing that makes the Bible so remarkable, by the way, is that despite all of the opportunities for there to be variations. And there are manuscripts here and there that have got some things different. But the fact that God's Word has been preserved and protected so well uh, over thousands of years is beyond the natural course of documents. I just have to say that. Anyway, that's just a very brief aside. It would take thousands of instances of minuscule chance all aligning all at once. Yeah. Like, well, this one, and yeah, this one says he did this before he did that, but that one says he did that before he did this. And you're like, yeah, but they both say that 
and they're both thousands of years yeah, old. Yeah, and the fact that the fact that God's word existed for most of its existence before the printing press, uh, it, it's shocking. Anyway, that that's an aside. But uh, so let's talk about this song, uh, Tyler. What is the song about? What happens in the song? Just give us kind of a general summary of it. Yeah, there are two parts to the song as it's most commonly sung. There's a part that is descriptive of the advent of Christ, the coming of Christ, the first coming. And it goes into detail about the people to whom his coming was heralded. It goes into detail about why he's coming and what the consequences of his coming will be. And then there's a turn near the end of the song that encourages the people singing it to um, offer praises to God. Fantastic. Let's get into some of the verses. And again, we might be in different places, but the I think the most common verse that we have is, God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. I think most versions have this, although maybe even here with some caveats. Or some differences. There are some differences. There are some differences. Um, but generally, this is the first verse of the song. Uh, and it's it's unfortunate, and I'll explain why. But often the song is called, O Tidings of Comfort and Joy. And I think that's probably good because it, it avoids this unfortunate ambiguity. The first line of the first verse is, God rest you, merry gentlemen. No, excuse me. God rest you. Excuse me. God rest you merry, comma, gentlemen. And here's why. <laughs> um, many, many versions of this song have God rest ye, merry gentlemen, or God rest ye, comma, merry gentlemen, or some other variation. Because there are two interesting things in this first line. So the first thing I'll point out is that we don't, in, in modern day English, we don't say, Colin, rest you merry about what is to come tomorrow. Right. It will be perfectly fine. Instead, we have things like to be comforted or to take, to rest assured is a similar explanation. But to rest merry, according to the authoritative source on the meanings of English words, the Oxford English Dictionary, um, means to be at ease, to remain content, in a certain condition. So Shakespeare said in The Tempest, um, he wrote, I have her sovereign aid and I rest myself content. Um, that's a good example of using rest in this way. We don't use that anymore. We use, we use it to mean to sleep or maybe to remain, to remain assured, to rest assured. And it has to be you and not ye. And here's why. You is reserved in earlier forms of English for the objective form of the pronoun ye. So ye would have been the old form of y'all. So it's second person plural. Um, and you would have been that same word, but when it's the object of a verb. So um, just like thee and thou, we had ye and you. Um, and just like in modern English, we have I and me. You can't say, give the ball to I. Or um, one of my favorite ones is, um, oh yeah, this is from Katie and I. No, this is from Katie and me, because it's the object of that preposition. Um, so this first line should be, God rest you, Mary. So you being the object of rest, Mary, 
and not ye. But the, the reason why this ambiguity comes up is because, first of all, ye and you start to be conflated in the modern English language in the early period in which it's spoken. And so we only have ye surviving in places like Scotland, rural Scotland yeah. and northern England. Um, you is ubiquitous in the English language now. The, the Scottish version of English is is barely English. I, you, you can barely understand a person who is speaking uh, speedily. Can I understand? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a whole nother language. Um, <laughs> so, God rest you, Mary, comma, gentlemen. Yeah. Meaning God comfort you, gentlemen, or God give you ease, gentlemen. And gentlemen here is an interesting choice of word because... It would have meant someone of the gentry or someone of of means, but obviously we're not directing this song exclusively at a certain <laughs> social class, right? So it has to be interpreted as being kind of like good Christian men rejoice. It's like okay. it's saying um, it's it's to the uh, Christians, and maybe there's a problem in this in that we see them as a unified group of generally good people or well demeaned people of a certain standing. Yeah. Um, but yes, we're speaking to Christians and we're wishing them peace and uh, and confidence and well-being. And so it sounds like you're saying then ye is some kind of forced archaism that has been brought in. I think at some point because it wouldn't have originally been ye then. It, you know, it must have been you. Right. So at some point somebody decided to bring in ye. Or they interpreted Mary gentlemen as being um uh, extrapolating on you. Uh, okay, so there's so God, like, oh, ye merry gentlemen, you know, may God rest you but or something really, like that. Yes, okay, so they didn't understand the the syntax. Right, which makes sense of why the comma gets mixed yeah. up here. God rest, comma, ye merry gentlemen but or the, something like that. Now the next line has some odd syntax too. Let nothing you dismay. What's right. going on there, Tyler? So, and this is what's funny. It looks like Latin. It does look like Latin because we have this verb at the very end of the yeah. sentence. Or Yoda. Um, or Yoda, or... Um, it Yoda like looks. What's funny is that no matter what version of the first line you have, everyone has let nothing you dismay. Yeah. So it, it clearly this is the original line. Um, let nothing you dismay. Now this is just um, toying with the syntax. Syntax just means word order. This is just toying with the word order to produce a nice rhyme for day. Um, but it, it, it is permissible because it's archaic as well. And you would find these uh, verb final clauses, a clause is basically just a sentence. Um, you would find verb final clauses in older forms of English, yeah. and you still find them in conservative dialects of English and in other Germanic languages as well. And as I said, Yoda does this. <laughs> Yoda puts his verbs at the end of his sentences, usually. Nothing is the subject of this line, um, and it's the idea that um, you should let nothing dismay you. Let nothing take your courage. Let nothing frighten you. Let nothing um, sap you of your Christian vitality, because we have good news. I wonder how many people have done the thing that I've done, again, up until this podcast, and just sung it, and just been like, God rest you, merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay, thinking that that was speaking about the merry gentleman. Like, let nothing, let nothing you don't like. Remember Christ oh. our Savior. Like, I, like it's funny if you if you construct it ah, in the way that a, a that a yes. person speaking modern English and using modern English syntax would. You you would just kind of run through this weird sentence. 
We're singing this because it's a Christmas song, and we know it's a Christmas song because we sing it at Christmas. But and you have like three tap dancing gentlemen in, right. in uh, big hats. And they're they're the they're the ye merry gentlemen, right? Exactly. And we have bad things that remember. Things. It's just I bring it up about myself again, just to say, like I'm the sort of person who makes a podcast about analyzing worship songs, and I didn't even care about this. So when we sing songs in church, how many of us are just singing them? And not at all thinking about what they mean, you know? I mean, clearly, I've done this a jillion times with God. I've sung God Rest You Merry Gentlemen hundreds of times, I'm sure. And I don't think about this, but I should. God rest you merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior. Was born on Christmas Day. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. Yes. So this is this has to be tied to the the reason why nothing can dismay us and yeah. what and the the means by which God rests us merry. We remember that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was born. The the trouble here is was he born on Christmas Day as we understand it in this song? Was he born on December 25th. And the answer is almost certainly no. There's like a one in 365 chance that he was. There's no real scholarly reason for why. You know, we probably don't want to get into the whole can of worms about the, you know, early pagan festivals or or even, you know, there's a whole discussion about this. Um, I had a student last year who sent me a really good article that he wrote on this, but I I don't have it handy right now. Student who's become somewhat famous now, actually. The conservative commentator Sean Hannity wrote a book which had some Latin on the cover. And this student pointed out that Sean, that whoever made this Latin just translated something into Google Translate and then just used that without ever checking to see if it actually made any sense in Latin. And it's total gobbledygook in Latin. That is very funny. Yeah. Well, man, Leo was on NPR and all this talking about this. It's Good for cool. him. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so Christ was born, and that should give us comfort. Um, we don't know if it was necessarily the day that we now call Christmas Day. No. But there's nothing particularly remarkable about the 25th of the month that we happen to call December. To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. And he was born for a purpose, Colin. He was born to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. So again, we have this were gone instead of had gone. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting, I think, here is that this is mimicking language from the uh, the parable of the 99 sheep. Yes. Uh, so we were the sheep that had gone away and the shepherd left his, his uh, flock to pursue us. But what's really interesting is this saving us from Satan's yeah. power. Yeah, what do you think is, I mean, I have a thought as to what's going on there, but what do you think is going on there, Tyler? Yeah, I, I would consider myself a proponent of a theory of atonement that sees Christ as a sacrifice for us, um, not a ransom. And there are different perspectives on this, and one of the more prominent theories of uh, the purpose of Christ's earthly ministry and uh, particularly his uh, sacrifice on the cross was um, a a means to 
liberate us from uh, captivity under Satan's rule. And I think that's what's being hinted at here, to save us all from Satan's power. That Satan's power is probably not um, original sin. Yeah, I agree with you. I think this is definitely referencing a ransom theory of the atonement. I do think we could say that there's the idea of going astray that could be a reference to sin, maybe, but it's unclear. It could also be a reference, yeah, to being in a different domain or like in a, in a, like there's the property of the shepherd and then there's kind of the wilderness. I think Colossians, right? He has transferred us from the domain of darkness and delivered us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Exactly. Which would be, which is kind of a, the closest thing to a proof text that you might have for the ransom theory. Do you see that as a potential proof text? Because domain implies not merely region, but also even region has this. If like at its root, there's a domine of the domain, yeah, not quite a kingdom, but like yes, but there's like an a, established a, a, authority. Yes, structure. exactly, a, a place where a lord reigns, a power reigns. Yeah, I'm not saying that text, by the way, proves the no, no. ransom theory. I You're don't advocate the ransom. It. I'm just saying if if a person holds the ransom theory, they would point to that text. Okay, very good. So, uh, Christ was born to save us from Satan's power in this song when we had gone astray, and then we are proclaimed tidings of comfort and joy. So, comfort and joy, these are still words that we have yep. and use them every day. Tidings, we don't use yeah, much anymore. that's a weird one. When, when was the last time you used the word tidings? Uh, Just this song. Around maybe. Christmas, probably. Good tidings. Yeah, that sort of, of thing. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, glad tidings. This is just a a fossil of older variants of English where this, this word was in everyday use. And there's an old English verb, tidan, which forms the base of words like betide. Have you ever heard that? Whatever betide, hmm. um, which betide just means befall or happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it probably has influence from uh, Scandinavian languages too. Um, but there's, there's a, there's a word in old Norse, Tidendi, which means tidings or news or information from afar. And so um, tidings is the English, old English word for news, especially news from afar. Okay. There's also um, the German word, modern German word. Everyone knows this word who studied a little bit of German. Zeitung, which means a newspaper. It's mm. the same root. It has the tide. Ah. So, and... Obviously, the Zeitung has Zeit as the first compound, but has nothing to do with, you know, what time is it in the day, right? right. These are it's pointing back to this old form tidings, um, news. So t- news of comfort and joy. Christ's birth is news to us of comfort and joy, especially if we're far off yeah. or we were in Satan's power, so to yeah. speak, in this domain. Okay, so Tyler, the next stanza that I think is most commonly sung is from God our Heavenly Father, a blessed angel came, and unto certain shepherds brought tidings of the same. What's going on here? Just to pick it apart line by line, from God our Heavenly Father, this seems very clear. It's nice to see God equated with our Heavenly Father, and mm-hmm. very scriptural. This blessed angel came from God. It just He didn't just spring up from nowhere. 
um, he sent from God and, and deliberately so. And that's exactly what is said in Luke chapter two. He comes. This verb is in the past tense. A blessed angel oh, came, yeah. which is why the next the next phrase also has a past tense verb. Brought tidings again. Brought news of the same unto certain shepherds. And you ask, what is the same? I think the same here has to be the coming of Christ. Mm. Because the same is obviously pointing back to something that was previously mentioned. That's how you use this expression in English. Well, does it refer back to the tidings of comfort and joy? I would say that, but the problem is it's he brings tidings of the tidings of comfort and joy. Well, that would be kind of redundant, wouldn't it? Yeah. Would it be he brought tidings of the fact that Jesus Christ, our Savior, was born upon this day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray? Tidings of the same kind as the tidings that we just sung about, which are that Jesus Christ was born on Christmas Day? Or, this this requires less legwork. Okay. What if of the same is of our Heavenly Father? Oh, okay. Brought tidings of or from? From their from sender, God. the sender of the message. Yeah. Um, okay. From God, our Heavenly Father, a blessed angel came and unto certain shepherds brought tidings. Of God. Of God. Yeah. That in Bethlehem was born the Son yeah. of God by name. That's way less legwork. That's the best explanation, I think. The same must refer back to the sender of the tidings. Yeah, brought tidings of God. We so, would just say from, which is why we were confused. Yeah, how that in Bethlehem was born the Son of God by name. This requires some unpacking because we don't use by name in this exact same way anymore. How's it being used here? I think what's happening here is that he the, the by name refers not to being born by name, because that doesn't make any sense, um, but the Son of God by name. I think this is pointing to Luke one thirty five. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Mm-hmm. So I think to be born the Son of God by name is he's given this title of the son of god at birth Mm. and i think that's what is meant by the son of god by name okay and then the next stance that i have is the shepherds at these tidings is that what you've got i have fear not oh okay so there's a stanza that is very common although not included in all of the earlier versions fear not then said the angel let nothing you affright this day is born a savior of a pure virgin bright okay to free all those who trust in him from satan's power and might oh tidings of comfort and joy fascinating let's take this one step at a time okay fear not then said the angel which the angel did say clearly definitely encourage them not to be terrified anymore let nothing you affright again we have this archaic verb final syntax that is probably probably uh, genuine here. It's not, yeah. it's not just meant for style. This comes from f- the noun fright and a Germanic prefix ah, which originally would have been uh, indicating a movement or direction toward or direction away from, and then later came to be uh, intensifying for verbs. And here, I think this is uh, a kind of transitivizing. Transitivizing means um, it takes a verb that 
did not take an object and now makes it the kind of verb that can act on other things. So something, uh, so you can say I fear or I have fright, but that affrights me or that frightens me. Those two, those latter two are transitive verbs because I can be the object of those verbs. So again, we have nothing complemented by let. Presumably it's some of these older words and older constructions that give scholars the hints at the age of this song because English is undergoing some changes and a lot of these words would have fallen out of use at particular points in history. So the fact that they're still there in the song suggests its age. Yeah, and and some older rhyming schemes can point us to regions and times that yes. this was that this was sung in. I'll have a thought on that later. Mm-hmm. So a fright just means frighten. Let nothing frighten you. Let nothing scare you. This day, the angels are not not just talking about Christmas Day generally, but this day specifically is born a savior. Again, we have texts that are there. It's almost a paraphrase of the actual words of the. Um, of the angels, of a pure virgin bright. It reminds me of Silent Night in some ways, but only this time the radiance isn't coming from Jesus. It's coming from Mary. Yeah, and I wonder if this gets back to some earlier Catholic conceptions of Mary. So she's not just pure, she's not just a virgin, but she's actually kind of beaming in a... a, Again, going back to the, the nimbus or the halo around her. Yeah. And maybe this is meant to be fair uh, to ah, to point to the idea true. where like um fair means light of skin, yes. but it also has these connotations of beauty yep. in older English as okay. well. French too. In French. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, excuse me, I'm laughing like, like an American. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. So it's possible, but again, it doesn't say fair. It says bright, and I think we have to take it at its word. Yeah. To free all those who trust in him from Satan's power and might. Now, here wow. we have, and I don't want to imply that we would rejoice at the limiting of the atonement or the particularization of the atonement, yeah. but this is more in line with what we see in Scripture. The beneficiaries of the atonement here are people who have faith mm-hmm. in Jesus Christ. That's in line with what we see in Romans 3, 21 to 22. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This is a very scriptural idea. The shepherds at those tidings rejoice much in and left their flocks a feeding in tempest storms and wind. Okay, now surely you have the shepherds at those tidings. Rejoice said much in mind. Do you have this one? I do. Okay. Tyler. Break it down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so we return now to the um, shepherds. And we see what they do when they get this news. They rejoice much in mind. I looked very hard in the Oxford English Dictionary for a way to make sense of in mind in this context. We have constructions like 
to bear in mind, to hold in mind, and to keep in mind. What exactly it means to rejoice in mind isn't clear to me. I don't think it means they rejoiced exclusively mentally and did not express that verbally. Yeah. I think this has to be they rejoiced while considering the tidings mm-hmm. that they had in mind. Yeah. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm not certain on this, Colin. It's not clear and it's it's a really rare construction. And it's strange too because you might say, okay, well the this word mind was used to rhyme, but then the word that it's supposed to rhyme with is wind. At least yeah. we say wind. So we do have mind and find, but then wind sticks out. Now, I have a thought on this, but you're the you're the resident linguist, so maybe you Okay, so we may be tempted to think this is slant rhyme. We may be tempted to think that it's possible. Um, but there's a reason why we should be cautious of that explanation, and that is there is attested in Middle English, so the period between old go. and newer English, a closed syllable lengthening where some vowels that were closed by consonants following them lengthened. Older English had vowels that were short that correspond to long vowels in modern English in words like bead, blade, whale, spade. So how would those have been pronounced? They would have been pronounced with their respective shorter vowels. So bead would have been bid. Um, the, pr- the problem is um, the lengthening fed another sound change in English that that moved the vowels. It's called the great vowel shift. It moved all of the vowels in Middle English around um, such that a became e, e became i. Okay. It's possible that this mind is really meant to rhyme with the other words, but it's undergone some changes. You think mind has undergone changes? Yeah, I think mind has undergone changes in our modern English that would not have been changed in the earlier versions of the song, in this carol as it would have been sung in in English. So it would have been mind, wind, and um, what's the third one? Find. Find. I wondered if it was wind, because you have uh, in English wind, which is a an alley or a street. Mm-hmm. And these are this is a very old, old, old term. This also was the same word that was used for wind, that it was actually W-Y-N-D. And so you have a W-I-N-D, an alley, or a small, a small road. And you also have a W-Y-N-D at one point for the wind. It's, it's often found in Welsh still to this day. The only problem that I am finding with that is this stanza does not appear in the oldest written version of this song from the mid-18th century. It does appear in the early 19th century. So it could be that it's a variant version that was maybe regionalized to a particular part of the world that may be pronounced wind that way. See, that only has to change one word. Yeah. Whereas that's your, true. yours has to change too. But you but know I'm a lot more about this than I do. The thing is, I'm not convinced that the um, circumstance that we happen to say these three words differently in our version of English now 
should be the metric by which we determine what's reasonable for change. But you're yes, right. Yes, you're correct. Mine means that I have to change two pronunciations but, in the stanza. Yours means I only have to change one. But that's from modern English. You're right. And if the whole vowel structure changed, then does that doesn't really matter, right? And it wasn't always consistent, the words that it affected. So, like, here's an example of modern American English reflecting a variety of English that did undergo it. The word, the past participle of shine in modern English yes. is shown. Yes, but I know but I say because I yes, because I'm influenced by the UK, so I say Sean. In Sean. fact, I think I said this on the podcast the other. I think you probably did. Yeah. So, yeah, you definitely did. I heard it. That's that's a closed syllable. The n closes that mm -hmm. syllable, and you have a conservative pronunciation that never lengthened that, and that long vowel never underwent the change into o mm -hmm. that we now have in modern English. Shown. Mm -hmm. um, you still have Sean. Yeah. I would come down on this as being originally a rhyme that through some inconsistent changes in the yes. history of English has become slant rhyme. Yes. We're just unsure of which words exactly. Yes. And I'm not changed. certain on it. I'm not yeah. certain on it, but, but that we, I think we can definitely say that that happened. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, what's going on there. You've been listening to the language review. Yeah. All right. <laughs> now, we get to left their flocks of feeding in tempest, storm, and wind. We haven't actually talked about the content of this. I would, just, I would say one thing. I don't know that there was actually a tempest, storm, and wind. I'm trying to figure out where that came from. Yeah, I think this is embellishment, but it's meant to point to a truth that they left their flocks in the yeah. field, which would have been career suicide for a herdsman. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's like yes. leaving your, I don't know, your bank account yeah. out in front of your lawn or and something. And shepherds in Israel are not exactly rich people. They, there is a long-standing idea in many ancient cultures, including ancient Near Eastern cultures, that shepherds are kind of, we have this idea, almost a noble idea of the shepherd, but that the shepherds were the dregs of the earth in the ancient Near East. They were people who were not tied to the land. This was a marker of civilization, was in some way being involved in agriculture. And shepherds were nomadic. So they were viewed as not members of a community. They were viewed as strangers. They were viewed as people who could potentially be intermingled with bandits. They were viewed as dishonest people for all of these reasons. So these are not people who would have, if they were thinking straight, would have just left their flocks. They were clearly moved by what happened. So they heard this news. They were told not to be afraid. They rejoiced, and then they left their flocks a-feeding. Um, yep. Which, <laughs> um, you know, Colin, I don't know if I know the uh, origin of this, but it, it's meant to communicate uh, a, a progressive verb, a verb that is currently happening, yeah. right? So a-feeding means the shepherd, the, not the shepherds, the flocks were in their fields eating at the present themselves. moment. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yep. And they went to Bethlehem straightway, in case you didn't already get that. Straightway. Picture. Straightway. Yep. They went directly to Bethlehem to find the Son of God. Yeah. And that lines up with Scripture. Scripture says that the shepherds made haste in Luke chapter 2. Straightway. Uh, yep. Very good. So they go there to find the Son of God. Booyah. Right? Perfect. Clear declarative statement. Yeah, which we saw earlier, the angel said he was the son of God by name. Here it's the son of God that they're looking for. And they find him. And they find him. And now, the fifth verse. Now to the Lord sing praise, and you within this place, 
this holy tide of Christmas, all others doth deface. Now, to the Lord sing praises, all you within this place, and with true love and brotherhood each other now embrace. This holy tide of Christmas, all others doth deface. O tidings of comfort and joy. Okay. So I have not sung this this verse. Oh, so really? you no. So you'll have to tell me a bit about this. Okay. I, I've sung this verse. I don't um I've obviously defaced this song. You have defaced it. This is the transition that I was talking about earlier, where the song goes from describing things that happened and confronts us with some imperatives. And imperatives are things that you're being told to do. Mm-hmm. Sing praises. All you within this place, this this place presumably is a I imagine that this place is a, uh, a church or a room in which people are praising, um, and we're being impelled to sing praises to God and embrace one another now, so hug one another. I think probably also figuratively like welcome and be of good disposition toward one another with true love and brotherhood. And it doesn't connect it to the following line, but the following sentence is, this holy time or tide of Christmas, all others doth deface. So uh, when we think of defacing, we think of a kid with a spray paint can sneaking out at night to go and um, destroy some maybe statues and and spray paint them. But um, it, it has an archaic meaning that's been lost. And it means to overshadow or to outshine something. And I have, oh, okay. I have another example. It's like literally just to deface it, to like to take the face, the brilliance of a face and like make it look smaller by comparison. Hmm. This is this is an interesting idea that the, Christmas the brilliance is, yeah. of Christmas outshines all other times in the Christian year. Yeah. Is that true, Colin? Uh, I, to, uh, I do not think so. It's certainly not true in the Western tradition. In the Eastern tradition, yes. Eastern Orthodox, but not in the Western tradition. Yeah. We Easter. Have, let's be... Think about this. We're admonished not to honor certain seasons. certain days, certain times, yeah. Moons. It defaces all other times. I think we do have to say this, though well-intentioned, is going too far. We we can celebrate the advent of Christ without denigrating the other amazing things that he did that we can celebrate. Seems like a silly this is a this is an original version of the war on Christmas. <laughs> this is maybe where it started. Right? Here we are saying Christmas is better than any other day and then, you know, now we've got Oh, you don't mean the war on Christmas. You mean like the culture war surrounding <laughs> the war on Christmas. Like the anxiety that forces people there to, you go. to right, make this, these this, maybe this was the original like Christmas is awesome and now we're we're, we're suffering for that, who knows, all these hundreds of years later. So you mentioned among the Eastern Church that the Advent is the... the, the um, Incarnation. The Incarnation is what is uh, emphasized. And I think in Roman Catholicism, the Easter is what... Or Easter, the, the uh, resurrection of yeah. Christ, is really the big holiday of the year. Um, I don't know what it is for me because I think they're all wonderful, but... It's interesting in the lit- Protestant liturgical calendar, it begins with Advent, hmm. and it ends with Christ the King. Hmm. And this is the regu- there's like regular time for or ordinary a large time. part of yeah, the ordinary summer. Time. Yeah. It'd be interesting to hear from some people that really care more about the the um, the liturgical calendar, like some Lutherans or 
others. I wonder what they would think of this line. I don't know if they have like a hierarchy, you know, again, the Lutherans would be the ones that I would ask. If you're Lutheran, let us know what you think. Wow. What a beefy song. Beefy indeed. Much beef. Tyler, let's, let's talk about the beef. Yeah. Now that we've chewed on it a lot, was it good? What are your concluding thoughts now about this song, now that we've gone through it? I think this song, when properly understood, gives a clear and scriptural description of the uh, advent of Christ in Bethlehem. It offers some predictions about the kind of salvation that he offers that I think are questionable or worth questioning, like, did he free us from Satan's power and might? It has many archaisms we've seen before on the show. Some of these songs have word forms and structures that are so old that it's impossible to understand without really studying it for hours. So it can be distracting and confusing at times. But I think I think it follows a structure that looks at what has happened, describes why it's important, and moves us to praise God for that. Mm-hmm. If you take the five verses as I've laid them out here, yeah. What are your thoughts? Colin? The archaic language is a challenge, but it's a it's our challenge in the original song and in the original linguistic context. It made a lot of sense. It's very consistent about the birth of Christ, what it means, and that it's good news. It's pretty consistent about the Christmas narrative as well, apart from the tempest. And like you, I do have some difficulty with the implied ideas about the atonement, but this is not a song that's like heavily trying to put forward a specific idea about the the atonement, like a song like How Deep the Father's Love for Us, which was really overtly about this really heavy, mm-hmm. heavy view of penal substitutionary atonement. So I am less, a little bit less concerned about this song's approach to the atonement. The issue, though, is that it is very difficult to understand, and you'd probably sing it mostly for the sake of tradition. Mm -hmm. It is nice to have a song that encourages people to think of the news of Jesus' birth as encouraging something that brings happiness and joy and fortitude, if if you translate Mary in that way. It's, I don't think we can go through a single verse of this song without finding something that takes a disclaimer Yeah, that would require an explanation, yeah. something to really consider if you're going to sing this song. What did you give the song, Tyler, for a rating? I gave this song four out of five archaic pronouns. Oh, there you go. Sensible. I was in a similar area. I gave it three out of five narrow alleys. Your wins. Yep. My wines. The wines. <laughs> yeah, my wines. Well done. Yep. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Worship Review. We do invite you to check out our many podcast episodes we now have recorded on our website, theworshipreview.com. We also invite you to check us out at Twitter and follow us. We also invite you, if you feel so inclined, to support the work that we're doing. We are paying for the website and everything else out of our own pocket, and any small contributions you can make to offset that would be much appreciated. Merry Christmas. 
You've been listening to The Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm slash theworshipreview and patreon.com slash theworshipreview. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.